Please turn with me in Scripture to Revelation, the last chapter, the last book in the Bible, beginning now in chapter 3 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. I have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him as a pillar, a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then... Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
Well, this morning we get to the fifth of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. In this case, a church in Sardis. Now, just to review, these are all real churches in Asia Minor. They were really churches in which the Apostle John was connected, appointed over. And Jesus Christ is revealing himself to these churches. He has a message for them. They're not generic Therefore, the situation of each and every one of those churches in different ways. He has a message about who he is. Now, he's who he is, but there are so many aspects to who he is, to that truth, that he is highlighting a particular aspect of himself to those churches. And then he has a message for who they are. So it's a revelation of who Christ is and who they are, and then what they ought to do in light of those things. So far in chapter 2, we've come across a good church that stands firm with Christ and his people no matter what persecution they face. A church that was faithful. A church that was also faithful under persecution but was starting to forget what it was all about in terms of loving Christ. They were losing their first love. Then there was a compromising church that had stood firm under hard persecution but under more subtle sort of things that they were compromising And then last time we heard about a very hard-working, happening sort of church that was sadly also tolerating heresy. Well, this morning we come to a new category where reputation and appearances do not match up, and that's the church in Sardis. This church, as we'll see, had a reputation for being alive. It had a good reputation for spiritual life. And maybe, probably, once that was the case. Maybe they once were alive. But now they're just living off their reputation. Or maybe the reputation never was really true. Maybe all it was, ever was, a sham, a front. They were just putting on a show. But in either case, by now, they're certainly just living off the reputation, whether rightly gained or not. And worse, besides kidding one another, kidding other people, it seems that they were also kidding themselves, that they were in denial about their spiritual condition. I think if you were to say, now keep in mind, there is a moment in which someone is actually receiving the letter at these seven churches, and they're opening it up as as we would today. Yes, they sent letters even 2,000 years ago like that, and not that we send many letters today, but emails perhaps. And they open it up, and they, they receive This message straight from Christ, and it says, you're dead. Now, I'm sure that that probably would have been a shocking message for them to hear. I don't think it is something that they had an awareness of themselves. I think that probably would have constituted news to them, because they were in denial about it. And worst of all, besides that they were kidding other people with their reputation, they were kidding themselves, and they were probably in denial about their real spiritual state of being dead. I think maybe, just possibly, they're also kidding God, because they've been in a habit so long of looking good and getting away with it, looking good from the outside, and other people taking them at face value for so long that they thought that they could actually kid God that way. But you see, Christ is the one with the eyes like the flame of fire. He is not deceived by the things that deceive man. We may be able to kid others. We may be able to kid even ourselves. But we can't kid God. 
He's not deceived. He sees and he knows everything. And he is able to pass the most perfectly accurate verdict on us. And the verdict that he passed on this church is you may have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And so Christ has a message then to these people. Christ, the one who is alive, it says that, remember. He was dead, but he is alive, and he lives forevermore. The one who is able to see all things with his eyes of flaming fire. The one of great purity, impossible for him to lie. He has a message for this church. To the church, to those who are kidding themselves, wake up. That's the message. To those who are kidding themselves, wake up. We have these three points. First, you are dead. Second, wake up. And third, the book of life. The first point then, you are dead. It says in Revelation 3.1, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, he says, I know your works, and he repeats that over and over again. That's the beginning of all, because it's all about knowledge of ourselves and knowledge about God. Knowledge about God and knowledge about ourselves. Those are the only two things that are truly significant of eternal moment for us to know about, about God and about ourselves. And he says, I know your works. I'm not ignorant of them. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Now, he knows about this. He knows this because he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's the way he's revealing himself in this case. And as we have spoken on other occasions of how this is symbolic of the church, but particularly of how he dwells among them as the spirit of God. He indwells his people through his spirit, his word and his spirit. And therefore, he is with us. He's not like some old decrepit judge living on the other side of the universe, which can easily be fooled. He's an eyewitness, you see. He is an eyewitness to everything goes around because he's with us. He's not ignorant of what we say. He's not ignorant of what we do. He's not even ignorant of what we think. He knows our works. He's an eyewitness to them. And in any case, he's omniscient because he's God. He knows their works. He knows what they've done. And so on that basis then of this perfect knowledge, he passes the judgment. He gives them the bad news. He says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. It's an appearance of life, but the reality behind it is of death. Now notice that clarity. It's a little, it's rare, isn't it, today? The clarity. In these mealy-mouthed sort of days, if a corporate press officer had to pass this kind of news, what would he say? He'd say something like, I don't know, you are facing challenges in terms of spiritual life. Something like that, to take the edge off of it. The idea is to so take the edge off of truth that it doesn't cut at all. Well, that's an all right game to play if what you have to say isn't all that important anyhow. And I, I... plainly admit that most of what we hear isn't worth hearing, isn't worth saying. But if the things have to do with eternal life or eternal death, that sort of thing, then you need to make sure that the edge is on the words and Christ does not deny that from his people. He wants to make sure that you know the truth. 
And the thing that he is saying is that you are dead. Appearances aside, this was a dead church. I'm sure that there was activity. That seems the implication. There was an activity because there's an appearance of life. There's got to be some sort of activity. They were certainly meeting. They were certainly doing. They were certainly saying things. But it was all show. There was a message of some kind, but it was not the pure, saving message of the gospel of grace. Grace in Christ. It was something else. They were dead. All appearances aside. And you know what Christ says for a church as a whole also goes for people individually. That we can have an appearance of being alive, but we can be dead. We can have an appearance of looking good, but the reality inside being anything but. People can be physically alive, but spiritually dead. I don't know if you know that, but the Bible says that in more than one occasion. It's because we're sinners, first of all. The rough equation, if we were to write it on the wall, is that sin equals death. We know that that was what was um, promised. That was what was threatened to Adam and Eve. If you, the day in which you sin, you're going to die. Now, they didn't physically die, so it must have been something else, right? Well, it was their spiritual death. They died in their souls. They, their fellowship with God was broken. They were spiritually dead. And that's what then it says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. So if you've sinned, then you're dead. Now, eventually, that, that spiritual death is going to turn into physical death as well. It's just a matter of time until it catches up with you. But at least at the very moment of any sin whatsoever, and we're all born in sin, we're spiritually dead. That's why then it says in Ephesians 2.1, you who are dead in trespasses and sins, or in Colossians, you being dead in your trespasses, is because they are spiritually dead. And all people start out that way. Now, one thing you can be sure about spiritually dead people is that they're not aware. Physically dead people are not aware. That's how you know they're dead, right? You check them. You see, are you, is there any response? You can hook them up a machine. Is there any, in any response whatsoever, any hint or evidence that this, this person before you is aware of a single thing? And if they're not, if they're not aware, you say they're dead. That is the case with us spiritually. If you're spiritually dead, then you are not aware of your condition. That's so much a problem, I think, with this dead church. They could kid themselves because they weren't aware of their situation because they were dead. They just weren't getting it. Spiritually dead people aren't aware of their condition. You can give them things to read, but they don't understand. You can speak to them, but they're not listening to you. And it's not because they're dense. It's because they're dead spiritually. That's the problem. Sometimes Christians get a little frustrated. They want to, to speak this gospel, which they know has been so important to them, has done everything for them. Christ has brought them from the dead and given them life. And it's so wonderful and it's so important. And we share that with people and they don't always believe it. And we, we think, what's wrong? 
Well, the answer is because they're spiritually dead unless Christ gives them life. Unless God gives them the ears to hear and the eyes to see, they can't see it. That's the problem. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. Well, this was a dead church. Appearances aside. And our second point is what they should do about it. And that is to wake up. Verse 2 says, be watchful in the New King James. And there's nothing wrong with that translation technically. I'm just not sure that it conveys the force of what's being said here. I think that the English Standard Version actually has this translation much better in the case. It says, wake up. That's what it's trying to say. To those who are dead, wake up. And Christ gives two specific reasons for why they should wake up. First of all, because your works are not perfect before God. Maybe I should speak in terms of A and B so we don't get them mixed up with the points. A, wake up because your works are not perfect before God. If their works had been perfect, then there would be no problem. People don't fear a surprise inspection if they've been doing everything that they should be doing. There's no fear there. There's nothing to hide. Now, the thing is, they did have something to hide. Again, what they're talking about is a sham situation of spiritual life when they were dead inside. And God has very high standards. It's, it's much higher than anything that we can come up with. You remember Matthew, in uh, Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking about the Pharisees who are known as the most religiously conservative, hardcore type of fundamentalist type people you could possibly imagine in that day. And this is what he says. I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Living a life given over in their own way to God, to living out his rules and so forth. The problem is they couldn't do it and no one can. It's because they're sinners. And on the other hand, the the standard that God gives is not just very, very high, relatively speaking. It's absolute perfection. There cannot be the slightest flaw whatsoever. The standard is absolute holiness, and the problem is that their works are not perfect before God. Now, that's an important thing to notice. I don't know if you say, I've not found your works perfect before God. Because maybe, just maybe, their works were okay or even perfect before people. They were above reproach. People around them couldn't see anything wrong with them. He says, they're not perfect before God. Not perfect before God in all of his perfect holiness and perfection. They don't measure up. And no one's works do. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one's works do measure up. We've all fallen short. Our works are not perfect before God. So they have something to hide. And that means there's sort of like a, a government that's secretly covering up some major scandal or a bank playing shell games with its bad debt or like, like a school who hasn't been doing their job at all and Ofsted's coming tomorrow. What are you going to do? They've got something to be afraid of. Wake up. It's the message to them. Wake up because your works are not perfect before God and they face the judgment. And to further elaborate, that is reason B. Wake up or else I will come like a thief. 
You see, because it's not, it's on the one hand the problem that they have, that their works aren't perfect, that's existent. Now that itself wouldn't ever be, it wouldn't be a problem if there never was going to be an inspection. But problem B, reason B, is that there is going to be this inspection. He's going to come like a thief. Remember, therefore, how you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you'll not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you'll not know the hour I will come upon you. Now, the parallel is that of a very common situation, just home invasion robbery. And if someone's asleep, the thief comes by, takes him by surprise and takes, and everything is lost. All is lost. The homeowner's not prepared, not ready for the thief coming, and all is lost. That's the way Jesus describes things in Matthew 24. Watch, therefore. Same word, wake up. Be watchful, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken in. Therefore, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Now, the thing is, no one actually knows. Christians don't know when Christ is coming back. The issue is readiness. That's the issue. He could come at any time. Are you ready? Not only could he, he come at any time, but death could take you at any time. And the question is, are you ready for that? Are you ready? You must be in spiritual preparation. You know, everyone says, one day I'll get my spiritual house in order. One day I'll start going to church. When I'm done with university, when I get a job, when the kids are out of school, and when I'm retired, and so forth, and so on, and so on, until the end comes, and you keep putting it off for another day. But what Jesus Christ says is you must be ready because you don't know when I'm coming. You don't know. Now, wake up. See, because Christ is able to wake people up. You know, a lot of good it would do to tell someone who's dead to wake up. They're not going to wake up, are they? They're dead. You can't make them wake up. But Christ can do that. Christ can come and tell you to wake up and you can do it. Because he has the power to bring life from the dead. Christ can do that physically. We know that throughout the Gospels. Like in Luke 7, when he came and he touched the open coffin of someone who, who died and was being taken out to burial. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. He can give physical life just like that. And he can give spiritual life through his word as well. He can even do it through someone else speaking on his behalf. That's the reason why we have this great story in Ezekiel 37 of the Valley of the Dry Bones. There's these dead, dry bones. There's tons of them. And the Lord asked Ezekiel, he said, Son of man, can these bones live? Good question. So I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And that's exactly what happened. The word of God was declared. Ezekiel says, okay, Lord, I'll speak this word to them. And, and so he says, dry bones, say to you. He declares the word of God to them. And the Lord sends the spirit upon them and they stand up and walk. Because it's pointing to the reality that God can give life even to the spiritually dead.
So, the command is to wake up. And third, to further explain these things, we consider the book of life, a third and final point. It says in verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, you might say, well, this seems to be dependent on something that I don't know if I can do, which is to overcome. But remember, this overcoming, and this is we've said this on other occasions, this overcoming is a kind of overcoming that's mentioned in 1 John 4. You are God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Not because of something that you're so great, not because of what you can do, not because of your abilities or holiness, but because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Christ is able to do that. And when you receive Christ and he becomes part of you through faith, then he's the one who overcomes for you. So the point, the overcoming is simply faith in Christ. Now, the book of life. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. What is the book of life? Well, we know what those sorts of books are, records. We know, for instance, the idea of someone keeping access to a building. Not everyone can come into the building. You have to have access. You have to be on that book. If you come and you're not on the list, you're not in that book, you don't get to come inside. Well, that's all the book of life is. It's God's book, his access log into heaven. And those who are not on the book of life don't get to come in. That's what it says in Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And here's the key. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It couldn't be any clearer than that. If your name's not in the book of life on judgment day, then you are cast into the fire. It's important if your name is written in the book of life or not. It means above all, you need to be in that book. And that means that you must be in relationship with the one who writes names and blots them out of that book. You know, the thing is, If you wanted access to a building, wouldn't it be good to know who was in in charge of that access log? Wouldn't it be good to be friends and in relationship with the one who decided who got to be on that access log and who didn't? Well, that's our situation with Christ. What Christ calls us to do is to call upon his name. And we'll be on that, that book of life. In fact, what he says is, confess my name. If you confess my name, I'll confess yours. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This recognition that we belong to one another. That's what Jesus says. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him also I will confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. You put your faith in Christ. You confess his name. 
and you will be in the book of life, and he will confess your name before his Father. That's what the book of life is about. Now I have then these three applications for these things. And the first is very simple, and it's to wake up. You know, um, some of us who, who know our church history know that there are these things called the awakenings a while ago. And sometimes people are under the impression that it's all about just conversions, that there's just mass, mass conversions, and that's what defines an awakening, but that is not what defined an awakening back then. It wasn't so much that they were actually converted, but it was that people woke up from their spiritual slumber. People that for all their life had never given a single thought to God started thinking about him. People who were under the impression, the false impression that they were Christians found out it wasn't true. The reality hit them. That they weren't believers, they weren't going to heaven at all. They woke up. And yes, it is true that many of them then came to saving faith in Christ. But the definition of that awakening is that people stop deceiving themselves. That's the point of the sermon, right? It is to those who are kidding themselves, the message is wake up. And in the awakenings, people for a moment under the power of God stop kidding themselves. Well, that's what we say. On the authority of the word of God, wake up. That's what he says in Ephesians. He says, you awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Arise. Wake up. Because the Lord has the power to wake you up. And the Lord has the power to give you life. Wake up. And second, be clothed. Now, again, this is something that has a physical component or the, the, the type of it, the picture of it, the imagery is something physical, but the reality is something spiritual. Adam and Eve, for instance, were, were created sinless. They didn't wear any clothes because they needed no covering. You know why? Because they had nothing to hide. Nothing to hide at all. But when they fell into sin, the very next thing that happened, even before God came in judgment against them, they immediately felt the need to clothe themselves, to hide themselves in something, to make coverings for themselves. And that was the first instance, I think, of someone kidding themselves. Because the covering they had for themselves, these fig leaves that they made, it wasn't good enough. And so that's why God has to do it in, in Genesis 3.21. For Adam and for his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed him. They couldn't do it. God had to do it. God had to clothe him. And it had to be with a sacrifice. It was with animal skins. Some animal had to die to provide them this covering. And that pointing to the fact that somebody is going to have to be sacrificed in order for us to be clothed from our spiritual nakedness. And that someone was the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sacrifice was his death on the cross. That's how we are clothed. We are clothed in his sacrifice and in his righteousness. That's what it says in other places in Revelation. One of the elders answered and said to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. He said, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are clothed in the sacrifice and in the 
with clothing, the covering that Christ in his sacrificial atonement has given to them. So we have to be clothed. And thirdly, for those who are clothed, those who have awoken from their spiritual slumber, those who have put on Christ as their garment, they ought to be baptized. Because this idea of white has something to do with baptism, doesn't it? That's the idea of being washed away from your sins. Yes, you're washed by the blood of Christ spiritually, but that's connected then with baptism. And that's why the Great Commission says, go into, for instance, in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And who believes and is baptized will be saved. Not that these things always happen at the very same moment. But there's a connection between the inward reality, the promise of salvation given to people, and then this physical sign and seal of baptism. And that comes to families, because the Lord uses families. As it has in Acts 16, there's this woman, Lydia. And it says, a woman, Lydia, named Lydia, heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And she and her household were baptized. Well, I think this now is a subject of what we now turn to, which is covenant baptism. Covenant baptism.